Matthew 5:17 through 20. Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For assuredly, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, not one jot or tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. And thus far the reading of God's word and all God's people said, There are several angles from which we can view the Pharisees, and each of those reveals some aspect of their view of themselves as well as their view of God. This is as much true for us as it was for them. If we could eavesdrop on your conversations, your thoughts, your prayers, we would soon discover what you really believe about yourself, about others, and about God. And like the Pharisees, we might learn that much of what you think is not consistent with what God thinks. Reading the New Testament, we can see that the Pharisees had a pretty high view of themselves. And if we were to ask them to rate themselves spiritually, they would give themselves Relatively high marks. Perhaps you would do the same. And so this is usually the result of people comparing themselves to other people and not comparing themselves to the infinitely holy God. So I want to challenge you here right now. What would this church be like? You probably have some complaints here and there about the church, things you don't like or think can be better. What would this church be like if everybody was like you? They give like you give. They participate like you participate. They sing like you sing. They pray like you pray. They love like you love. They're gracious like you're gracious. So... When you join the church, is the church better because you joined? If you leave, is the church better because you left or worse? That's a question we all have to consider. And you see, the Pharisees would have said, oh, well, of course, if I was there, it would be much better. It's those people. Those people are the problem. Because, you see, they were self-righteous. They were condescending. They looked down their noses upon others, and we are tempted to do the same. Now, later in today's sermon, I'm going to deal with the flip side of this coin, this coin of self-righteousness, and I will, I'll deal with those who think they are too bad to be approved by God. Some people think they're good enough to be approved by God, and others think they're too bad to be approved by God. So the Pharisees think they're doing a pretty good, doing pretty good, and along comes Jesus, and he calls them whitewashed tombs, hypocrites, and sons of the devil. 
I think Jesus must have been reading too much blog and may blog. In other words, Jesus challenged the self-righteous and he called them out. However, in Matthew 5.20, which we just read, Jesus, interesting, in light of this, Jesus points to the Pharisees and he says this, He raises the bar for righteousness, for I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds uh, the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. That had to be a rather alarming statement to hear. He actually says that righteousness is a requirement for getting into the kingdom. And so for those of us who have a bit of a reformed and evangelical bent in our circles, we might feel the urge to dismiss this or explain it away out of concern for guarding salvation by grace alone through faith alone. But this statement is not a call for us to work and earn our way to heaven. It is actually a statement about the function of righteousness and the law of God, as we'll see. You see, the Pharisees had reduced the law of God to a list, albeit a long list, of outward behaviors and rituals that could be kept by a select few, of course, that being them. We've seen many versions of this in our own circles. They could deal with food, our dress, our entertainment or a host of other things that Christians have come up with. We have our own list that we've reduced spirituality to. And if if you do all these things, you're a good Christian, and God's pleased with you, and if you don't, He's not. And so in many places we read where Jesus condemns the behavior of the Pharisees, but now He says to His followers that their righteousness is going to have to exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees and scribes. But is that humanly possible? As I pointed out in the first sermon in this series, the Pharisees were the most influential and powerful group in the Jewish culture, at least at the time of Jesus' earthly ministry. And you'll recall that their name means separated ones. They thought they were separated from sinners, that they were above all these people. But the truth was, they were separated from God because they rejected His Son. In fact, they not only rejected Jesus, many of them went so far as to conspire with other Jews to have Jesus murdered. They regarded themselves as above others and separated from the unclean masses, those people. But Jesus must have shocked them when he told them this. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you pay, pay the tithe on the mint and the cumin and the anise and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faith. These you ought to have done, that is, the tithing and the other also. We shouldn't overlook the fact that Jesus said, these you ought to have done. And that's a separate discussion of this text about how the law has not is still applicable in in its ethical content. And so Jesus isn't saying, don't do that. He's saying, yeah, you should do that. 
That's the easy part. You're neglecting the weightier part. You're neglecting the hard part. The part that really comes from the heart. So the Pharisees had rejected true justice, mercy, and faithfulness to God. And as it turns out, they were the separated ones, but not the way they thought. They were separated from a holy God by their sins of hypocrisy and self-righteousness. Isaiah 59.2 says, But your iniquities have separated you from God. Remember, separation is death. Your sins have hidden His face from you. He will not hear. And so they rejected grace and mercy because they were so entangled with their man-made traditions and additions to the law of God that most people couldn't possibly live up to. And so Jesus tells them to their face, But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, for you shut the... This is interesting. He tells them, You shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you neither enter yourself nor allow those who would go in. In other words, you're misleading people. You're leading them astray. You're closing the door. He says you would travel across sea and land to make a single convert, a single proselyte, and when he becomes a proselyte or a convert, you make him twice as much the child of hell as yourselves. That's strong language. Because this is a very critical issue. Jesus isn't playing around here. This is life and death. Eternal life and death. So why would Jesus say to his disciples, in light of this, your righteousness must exceed that of the Pharisees, or you won't enter the kingdom of heaven? Were the Pharisees really righteous? Weren't they just self-righteous? Well, it's clear that the Pharisees didn't have the righteousness that God demands to enter the kingdom of heaven. They thought they were righteous, but they were wrong because the Bible teaches that none are good or righteous. Romans 3, which quotes from the Old Testament, verse 10 through 12, As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. They have all turned aside. They have all become unprofitable. There is none who does good, not one. So why does Jesus say that our righteousness must exceed that of the Pharisees? All they had was their, all they had was their self-righteousness, which is unacceptable to God. Instead of trusting in Christ Jesus... Instead of trusting Christ, Jesus said that they were those, and I quote from Luke 18, 9, who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and they despised others. By the way, that's a, a good indication. If you spend a lot of your time despising other people and how bad they are, that's a strong indication that, that you think pretty highly of yourself. Jesus told the Pharisees, Luke 16:15, "You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your heart. For what is highly esteemed among men is an abomination in the sight of God." And so they fail to see that only those who trust in Christ can be justified, and everyone 
needs the righteousness of Christ or else you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. That's why we need a righteousness that exceeds the righteousness of the Sadducees and the Pharisees. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For he, God, made him, Christ, who knew no sin, to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. When people feel self-righteous, they can treat others with contempt. However, their own works, just like ours, are nothing more, according to the Scriptures, our, our righteousness is nothing but filthy rags. Nowhere in the Bible does it teach that people are good enough to go to heaven or can do good works to get there. Our sins have cut us off from God. So Jesus ended that separation, and now we are separated or set apart unto God, but not from God, and separated unto good works for His glory. If it were a matter of good works, then we're all together, let me tell you this, you cannot do enough. If it were, if it were up to good works, then we are altogether hopeless because our works can never be enough to save us. You say, you know, you're telling me what I already know. I know you know that, but I think you, like me, forget that. We know it's true, but then we act like it's not true. All the good works in the world couldn't help the Pharisees after they died and faced judgment. So, here's the other twist. I said I was going to give you the other side. So maybe, maybe you're on that side of things. Maybe that's your inclination. But I think the other side is another twist on this. And sometimes, again, we can fall in the ditch on either side of the road. It's another way to reject Jesus. There are many who readily recognize their own sinfulness. They're ashamed. They're embarrassed. They feel a deep sense of guilt for their sins. They've asked for forgiveness, and God has promised that forgiveness in Christ, but they cannot and they will not believe God. They will not accept His full and free forgiveness. This unbelief is actually the sin that they need to repent of. There's something in all of us that wants to save ourselves. It's the other side of self-righteousness. We want to make ourselves acceptable to God by first being good. We want to earn God's favor, but earning God's favor eliminates what? If I'm going to earn His favor, it eliminates grace. Grace is ill-deserved favor. Ill-deserved. You don't deserve it. So if you're trying to deserve it, if you're trying to live in such, if you're trying to say, I need to make myself acceptable to God by being this kind of a person, and if I'm not, I can't come to God or have to hang my head. You know what? If we eliminate the need for grace, then in the end... We're in trouble because salvation is by grace alone. If there's no grace, there's no salvation. And the Pharisees had devised a system, we might say, again, a list of do's and don'ts. And if that list were kept, then that would commend them to God. But like the Pharisees, some of us think that we can only go to God 
when we've been good, but we resist going to God when we've been bad, as though he doesn't know that we've been bad. As though unless we go to him, it's a secret. Or, as I said, some of us go to God when we've been bad, but we think that the blood of Jesus is not sufficient to cleanse us from our sins. And we don't believe what the scriptures say. Let me just give a, a couple of examples. First John 1, 7. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Every last one. First John 1, 9. You've heard many times if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just. To forgive us our sins. By the way, again, that word is plural. Particular sins. Make a list. Put every sin on there you can think of. He says, confess those and I'll forgive all of those and I'll give you a bonus. He says, I'll cleanse you from all unrighteousness. In case there's some you left off the list. In case there's some you've forgotten about. I'll take care of those too. Do you believe that? Romans 8, 1, there is... I told uh, Ingrid this story the other day. I've told some of you. It's a, I think it's one of those uh, apocryphal stories, but who knows with Luther. Supposedly he's in his room one night and he hears something and he, and he grabs the lantern, lights it, and hands it across the room and there's the devil with a big scroll under his arm. And the devil unrolls the scroll and it goes all the way across the room and at the top it says, Luther's sins. And the devil's pointing at that. And he goes over to the end of the scroll and unrolls the last little part. And there is written, There is now therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And the devil fled. No, we think Jesus is powerful but he's not so powerful as to forgive my sins. I'm special. My sins are too many or they're too big for him. I can't accept that God made him who knew no sin to be sin for me, that I might become the righteousness of God. But that is the gospel. I refuse to believe what the scriptures say, that God has cast all my sins behind his back. Or that he has cast all my sins into the depths of the sea. Or as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed my transgressions from me. Or that God will be merciful to my unrighteousness and my sins and my lawless deeds. He will remember no more. I just can't accept that. I must get my act together. I have to clean myself up first. I have to contribute. But you can't. And you never will. And you and you never can. Remember Isaiah's vision? Isaiah 6, when he sees the Lord... In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. 
Above it stood seraphim, each had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out, and the house was filled with smoke. This is no little bitty God. So I said, Woe is me, for I am undone. Because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts, Jehovah of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a live coal which he had taken with the tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth with it, and he said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away. Your sin is purged. You see, by perfectly obeying God's law from the heart, Christ merited righteousness for those who trust in Him. This we might call positional righteousness. Christ perfectly fulfilled the law in the way that the Pharisees, even with all of their careful efforts, could never do. And that flawless obedience of Christ of Jesus counts for those who trust in him just as if they had perfectly kept the law themselves. But Christ when he speaks means more than this. Throughout the sermon on the mount, he calls Christians to a deep understanding of an radical obedience to the law as uh, as reflective of the character of God. He says therefore in Matthew 5:48, therefore you shall be perfect just as your father in heaven is perfect. Christians, we dare not treat the law of God lightly. Because how we view God's law, which is a transcript of his character, how we treat the law of God indicates how we view God himself. Thus, Christians are called to joyful obedience to his law out of love for Christ. Now, this is critical. So this obedience we could call practical righteousness. It's not the ground of our salvation. What is the ground of our salvation? The righteousness of Christ alone. I cannot do enough. I never can. I can never accumulate enough. I can't undo what I've done. It cannot be the grounds of my salvation. That has to be something God does. But once He does it, once He's forgiven my sins, once He has given me life, once He's resurrected me, once I am in Christ now, what is the only possible response to that? Love. And Jesus said, if you love me, you keep my commandments. That's how we know And so, we can't merit justification by our works, but the righteous, this is the righteousness that exceeds that of the Pharisees because their obedience didn't come from the heart. 
And it's an evidence of fruit that we have been truly saved and have entered the kingdom of heaven. The righteousness that is the product of this joyful obedience exceeds that of the Pharisees in kind rather than degree. Those of us who are in Christ have been saved from the law as the necessary means of salvation. Do this and live. Nevertheless, we have also been saved to the law as a way of loving and worshiping the God who saved us. How then can a person receive the righteousness that is required to enter heaven since nothing unclean can enter? You know, folks, we've got a problem if it's just us. Revelation 21, 27, But there shall by no means enter in it anything that defiles or causes an abomination or a lie. Now, we have already made it clear that it isn't going to be a self-righteousness because that's not enough. And so if you're waiting to get good enough to make yourself acceptable to God, you'll be waiting outside the kingdom for all eternity. It will take a perfect holiness to enter in, and we know how that is achieved. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him, the monogenes, the, the unique Son of God, whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. Acts 4.12, nor is there salvation in any other. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Romans 10, 9-13, that if you confess with your mouth, how, how, how do I acquire this righteousness? If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame or will not be disappointed. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is uh, Lord over all is rich to all who call upon him. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Isn't it more complicated than that? No. Stop trying to make it complicated. It's just that simple. As the Apostle Paul writes, for he, again, he made him, Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that we would become the righteousness of God. This is exactly why God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness, because in his forbearance, God has passed over the sins that were previously committed. How many sins have you previously committed? Well, that's how many he took care of. So it's not our righteousness, but Jesus' own righteousness that is imputed on our behalf, and it infinitely exceeds the righteousness of the Pharisees. This was expressly done, Romans 3.26, to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness that he might be the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus.
Now, finally, if it were not for Jesus' atoning death on the cross, all of us would still be separated from God by our sins and deserving the wrath of God. We're sitting here among, hopefully, almost everyone, if not everyone, hopefully a whole bunch of redeemed sinners. So let's get off our high horses toward one another and saddle up next to each other and realize we're all, every last one of us, in the same boat. So we're all deserving of the wrath of God in that situation. However, I just want to close with these few verses here. Romans 5, 6, For when we were still without strength, in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. Romans 5, 8, But God demonstrates his own love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 5.10, for if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we will be saved by his life. And then 1 Peter 1.18-20, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver and gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as a lamb without blemish and without spot, He indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you. The sinless one became sin for the the sinful ones because his righteousness was credited to us. And that exceeds the righteousness of the Pharisees in ways that cannot be measured. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we bless your name, for by your love you sent your only begotten Son, that he might rescue us and redeem us. He who laid down his life for us, who became sin, that we might be the righteousness of God. We acknowledge that we were without Christ and without hope, and that in our hopeless and helpless condition, the God-man became our only mediator. His body, as the Lamb of God, was sacrificed for us. His blood was shed for the remission of our sins. What glorious news this is for us. The gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ is our salvation. We thank you also for the faithful saints who have both guarded and delivered this gospel to us, who by their lives and testimonies were faithful to their calling. We rejoice in your kind providence, which brought the good news to our ears and for the Holy Spirit who opened our hearts to receive so great a salvation. Help us now to understand your glorious work of salvation, that we might come to Mount Zion and enter the city of God, that we might likewise declare it to the world, that we might embrace your mission and transmit that mission to our children and our children's children so that we might be found standing with all the faithful. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. First Corinthians eleven twenty three through twenty six. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, "Take eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me." In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying. 
This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so we come now to the Lord's table to remember him. We need to remember him because we are prone to forget him. Our self-centeredness, our self-righteousness constantly draws attention to ourselves. But we are called to look away when we come to this table, to look away from ourselves. It is not about our righteousness, nor even our sinfulness, but about our mediator and our substitute. And so as we eat and drink, we proclaim his death till he comes. His death, you see, needs proclaiming because it is the only hope for sinners to be saved. O God, our shield, protect us now as you have in the past from the deceptions of Satan. Cause us to cherish the blessings of your pure word as our fathers in the faith have delivered it to us. Give our leaders courage and wisdom and zeal to proclaim the gospel faithfully. Give us the desire to support the work of your kingdom with the means that you have provided. Stir up the hearts of our sons and daughters to eager service in your church. Send laborers into your harvest. And give your word free course to bring the joy of salvation to the many who are left yet in darkness. We ask all this, Lord, and ask your blessings upon our time of fellowship, our meal, our rest. And we pray this in the name of Jesus, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God through all eternity. Amen. Amen. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us, to him be the glory in the church by, by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen.